Well, if you would, take in your Bible, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter number 14. And Brother Randy said, this will be the last time you'll stand. Actually, we're standing one more time. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, appreciate it very much. Mark chapter number 14, and we're going to read the first nine verses. Mark chapter number 14, verse number 1, Word of God says, After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for, again, this day that you've given to us, this opportunity to gather together in your house. Uh, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just simply go through the motions today of hearing another sermon, but Lord, help us to really have readiness of heart for your word today, to really have a a desire to uh, grow and to make decisions that would make us more like you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to focus in on what you'd have for us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The title of the message today is Bold Behavior in Bethany. Bold Behavior in Bethany. The last two Sundays, uh, we were able to go through the entire chapter number 13, which looked ahead at several events in the coming future. We looked at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would eventually happen in A.D. 70 as Titus came through and uh, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Then Jesus pointed to the Great Tribulation period in which this world would experience catastrophic, catastrophic events unlike anything this world has ever seen. And then he pointed to, we spent some time last week talking about the powerful return of our Savior, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we just sung about in our Christmas carol this morning. And in those promises about the future in chapter number 13, if you recall, the Lord also gave several priorities for us saints to be focusing in on. He instructed us to not be troubled. Uh, but instead to take heed and to be careful and to be faithful, to endure, to be preaching the gospel, to be watchful, to be praying, to be awake, and to be uh, working faithfully in His harvest field. 
And now we come to chapter number 14, which is, by the way, the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. But it is an action-packed chapter as we're getting very close to the cross. In fact, in chapter 15, we get to the cross. And then chapter 16 is, praise the Lord, the glorious resurrection of our Savior. But for now, we're, gonna, uh, we're, we're still a little bit away from the cross here in chapter number 14, but a lot's going to happen. So uh, you're not going to want to miss any of these messages. So just plan to be here for every service going forward. Now, today in our passage, we're going to see three very bold behaviors that took place. And Mark is going to actually contrast the bold behavior of those who wanted Jesus completely gone with one who greatly loved and adored the Lord Jesus Christ. Three bold behaviors in Bethany. What were they? First of all, let's notice as we look in verses 1 and 2 here, the enemy's desire. The enemy's desire. Verse number 1 says, After two days was the feast of the Passover. So our passage today takes place just prior, just before, two days before the feast of the Passover which ultimately kick-started a week of the Jews eating unleavened bread. As he says here in verse 1, after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And for centuries, the Jews had observed the Passover, a celebration that commemorated the time, if you recall, when God miraculously delivered the Jews from the bondage of Egypt. At the Passover, an innocent lamb would be offered without spot, without blemish. And here they are, two days before the Passover, looking, no doubt, needing an innocent lamb without spot or blemish to sacrifice for the Passover, not realizing that the Lord Jesus, as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who is completely innocent, without spot or blemish, was standing right in front of them. And the true Passover lamb was in their midst, and yet they failed to recognize him as that Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, he had indeed come to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of humanity, but the vast majority, sadly, would totally deny and reject Jesus Christ. And in verse number 2, it says, not only did they reject him, but uh, the Bible says the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft for the purpose of, at the end of the verse it says, to put him to death. They wanted to kill the one who came to give them life. Jesus, remember in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they wanted to put him to death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9 says, We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. They wanted to put him to death. Well, he did need to die and be sacrificed so that our sins could be atoned for. But their heart in it was definitely a wrong desire. In verse number 2, it says they wanted to wait until after the holidays were over. <laughs> in verse number 2, they said, we want to put him to death, but not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Uh, we need to wait till like the holidays are over, until we do this, until we murder the Son of God, until we murder the Messiah, 
we're going to wait until after the, the feast. Well, they didn't get a chance to wait because it wasn't on their timetable. It was on God's timetable on when it was going to happen. But they had this desire, the enemy did, a desire to uh, take him by craft. And this was, uh, they, they, they got together and they had these elaborate plots to try to take him down. And we've seen some of them already uh, take place in, in Mark chapter 11 and 12, where they come to him with these questions, trying to trip him up and to catch him in his words. But they're like, we've got we've to take him by craft. We've got to be really, uh, really careful and, and uh, deceitful to try to get him so that we can uh, put him to death. So they had this desire, and it was a very bold desire to put him to death. So uh, bold behavior number one was the enemy had a desire to put Jesus to death. But as we make our way through this passage, I want us to notice bold behavior number two here was the extravagant devotion. The extravagant devotion. So the enemy had a desire, and that was to put him to death. But then you contrast that with... This is a complete polar opposite. While there were men who plotted the murder of Jesus Christ, there was a lady who showed tremendous devotion, extravagant devotion for her Lord. In verse number three, let's look at it. Being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So this house that they were in belonged to a man by the name of Simon, who was a leper and Obviously, he was healed. Otherwise, people wouldn't have been in that house because in those days, if somebody had leprosy, they had to cover their mouth and say, unclean, unclean, and everybody would run away from him. So he was a leper, and he had been uh, cleansed and healed, and I can't help but think maybe he was one of the ten uh, that was healed. Uh, remember when the ten lepers came to Jesus, and he healed all ten of them, and only one came back to express his gratitude. Could have been uh, the name of that one who came back. Could have been Simon. Could have been this guy. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really clarify, but uh, it's fun to kind of think that that may be the case. Either way, Simon uh, was no doubt thankful that he was cleansed and healed, and so has this, has this dinner he sat at meat, and there came a woman at this, uh, at this time having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. So a couple thoughts about this extravagant devotion. First of all, I want us to see that it was extremely costly. It was costly. Matthew and Mark, both in their gospel records, say that, that the amount here was very precious. The precious means it was uh, very expensive. It was of great value, of great price. And John, in his record of this event, said that this box of ointment of spikenard was very costly. So here in Mark and in John's account, we learn that this was worth about uh, when, when, when the disciples kind of had this, this thought here in verse number 5, it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. Uh, we learned that this was worth, this, this ointment that she broke and poured over the Lord, Lord's head was worth about 300 pence. And uh, I do need to make the obligatory, no, not the 300 former vice presidents. That's not what that means. Okay, most thank you for the laugh. Um, most Bible scholars agree that though a pence was equal to a day's wage in that day. 
So 300 pence is equivalent to a year's salary in that day. Now put it into perspective, the average year's salary here in Moore, Oklahoma is about $49,000 per year according to Zipia, the career expert website that I looked at this week. And uh, this is what came up, $49,000. So can you imagine spending $49,000 on a bottle of perfume? Got me thinking uh, this week, what's the most expensive bottle of perfume or cologne in the world? Well, I found out that the most extravagant bottle of cologne is Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty for Men. And it's the most expensive cologne in the world. The scent was released in 2006 and only 10 bottles were made. The bottle uses a solid gold piece at the top and five carats of white diamonds. And the jewelry alone makes this cologne extremely expensive. Some of the fine ingredients include cedarwood and tonka beans. So how much would this cologne set you back? A bottle of this? Well, a bottle, a 16.9 ounce bottle, which is uh, this amount of liquid here. This is 16.9 ounces. 16.9 ounce bottle of this particular cologne costs $435,000. I can't imagine spending over $400,000 for it. I mean, $435,000, that's just, that's outlandish. That's crazy. Well, the ointment that this woman poured on the head of our Savior was costly too. It wasn't $435,000 worth, but equivalently, it would have been about $49,000 worth in our day and age. And, and again, can you imagine breaking that over the head of this preacher that keeps walking around and doing all these crazy miracles? Well, she was willing to do it. She gave it. And she didn't hold back, by the way. She spared no expense. Now, we learn the identity of this woman. Mark and Matthew both don't share her name. But if you compare it with the Gospel of John, which uh, most Bible scholars believe is the same instance, John identifies this as Mary. Now, when you think about what Mary, the, the, the sister, okay, there's several Marys in the Bible. You're like, okay, Mary, well, that really narrows it down. Everybody's named Mary in the Bible. Not really, but there are several. And, and the Mary that John says that she is, she is the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. And remember, in, in, in her life, there was something very special that took place prior to this instance. Her brother Lazarus had died, and they were obviously very disappointed that Jesus stayed where he was and didn't come when they had called him. And they, they said, hey, if you had come when we called you, I know you could have healed him, but now he's dead. Thanks a lot. They were really discouraged. And then most of us know what ended up happening. Jesus awaits until he's good and dead four days. The Bible in the King James says he stinketh. I do love that word because we use that word quite a bit to describe our boys in our home. We speak King James in our house. You stinketh, boy. Go take a shower. But 
Lazarus was long and dead, and, and, and his body was decomposing, and, and it wasn't like he could get up from that. He was, he was dead. And the Lord comes on the scene, and he weeps. And we have our John 11.35 verse, Jesus wept, uh, which shows his humanity and his compassion and his love for his uh, friend Lazarus. And then they take him to where Jesus, or where Lazarus was buried in that tomb. And, and Jesus makes those, those famous words, Lazarus, come forth. And at that moment, Lazarus arises from the grave. And you can imagine the joy that that brought to Martha and Mary as they watch their brother come back to life. So as she meets here in this house sometime after Lazarus had been risen, had been resurrected, there was, a, there was no doubt a heart of gratitude for the Lord and what he did for her in, in blessing her and performing that miracle for her family. So in her mind, like $49,000 or my brother, like no, no problem. I'm willing to give this because of what you've done for me. And, and so really, let me ask you this question. How much is too much to give to the Lord? And when you stop and think about what God, Jesus gave to us, he, did, he also spared no expense. While her sacrifice was indeed costly, it still pales in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you and for me. And so when the Lord gave his gift, he gave everything and he spared no expense. And it was far more valuable than $49,000. It was everything. God tasted death for every man. So when I say, how much is too much to give to the Lord? I would encourage all of us to say, nothing is too much because of what he gave to me. He spared no expense for me. I should not spare expense for him. I was saying everybody needs to go empty your bank account and go put it in the offering box in the back after the service. Although, if the Lord tells you to, by all means. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this morning. I, what I'm simply saying is having a heart that says, God, whatever I have is yours anyway. And if you want it, you can have it. And Mary said, this is very valuable. This is really expensive. But it's worth giving to you because of what you have given to me. See? It, it was costly, this extravagant devotion. It was extravagant because it was costly. Then I want us to see, not only was it costly, it was also criticized. And this is a sad part of the story. I wish it would have just stopped here at verse number 3, but it didn't. It went on in verse number 4. Because it was such a public thing, and by the way, you can imagine that spikenard began to fill that room, the, the aroma of that spikenard. Um, my wife has some spikenard, and we didn't have enough to pass it around here this morning, but I wanted to let you smell it because you just imagine, I mean, I have a couple, couple uh, bottles of cologne, a uh, couple 
few, okay? And uh, can you imagine one of those breaking in the bathroom? And that, that whole bathroom would just like smell horrible. I mean, a little bit is okay, but this thing, everybody noticed it. Everybody noticed it. It was hard to miss her act, but then also the eventual smell that began to per, uh, permeate the room. In fact, in John chapter 12, it does, it does say that. Let me go turn there real quick. John chapter 12. It says, um, here we go in verse number 3. Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So it, it just kind of blew everybody away. They're like, whoa, a little too much. And some, most of us have been around somebody who put a little too much cologne on or a little too much perfume on. It's like, <coughs> when I was on staff in, in California, there, were, there was a lady in the choir who was extremely sensitive to all this. And so there eventually became a rule. Please do not wear cologne or, or perfume in the choir. It's kind of like, oh, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, but there was somebody who was really sensitive to that. And, uh, well, she would have been blown away. I mean, with, with this, pound, this pound of ointment that gets broken and poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's a good picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. He was broken and poured out for us. When he died on the cross, his body was broken. And his blood was poured out for us. And had he not done that, we would all be in a world of hurt. But here, her act of devotion was criticized. Verse number 4, back in Mark chapter 14, there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Now, where do they get this indignation within themselves and say, why was this waste of the ointment made? Well, if you compare it with John chapter number 12, and let's turn over there real quickly. John chapter 12, verse number 3. John 12, 3 says, Then Mary... Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. It wasn't that she just poured it on his head, but she also anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair as well. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Verse number four, notice this. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, and here's what he said. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? So he vocalizes a criticism. And in Mark's account, in verse number four, it says, And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? See, what had happened is Judas was critical. And by the way, his criticism was a lie. He didn't really believe that. In verse number 6, it says, This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put there. And he was like, we should have sold that, given to the poor. We'll just put it in my bag. I'll take care of it until we get it to the poor. And ultimately, he was going to uh, steal the money himself, embezzle the money. But Judas Iscariot, he vocalizes his criticism, 
Then guess what happens? In Mark chapter number 14, the rest of the disciples kind of go, you know what? Judas, you're right. We should have sold this and given it to the poor. Now, his criticism wasn't legitimate. He was lying. He just wanted the money for himself. He wanted to pat his own wallet. But my point is, he vocalizes his criticism, and those around him heard it, and then they started taking his side. They started having this critical spirit in their hearts. There were some that had any nation within themselves and said, Yeah, Judas is right. Why was this waste of the ointment made? We, we should have sold it for more than 300 pence and given to the poor. And then they started murmuring against her. Can I just stop and say this when it comes to being around critical, negative people? You start listening to it, it's going to start affecting you. These disciples were listening to Judas talk about how horrible of a decision this was for her to break this ointment over the Savior and give it to all to him in that moment. And they took his side. They started listening to it, started having an ear for it. And guess what? They began to, their hearts began to change. And they started going, you know what? Now I have indignation. I have a critical spirit. Whereas if they would have just said, Judas, you just need to stay out of this and, and watch what this girl is doing here. This girl is giving an extravagant gift to her Savior who's going to give himself as an extravagant gift for all of us. By the way, her gift proved that. Jesus said in verse number 8, uh, back in Mark chapter 4, he said, um, 14, he said, She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. By the way, spikenard wasn't just a good-smelling spice. It was, it was for the burial. It was meant for the burial. And so what she was doing, her act was an uh, act saying, Hey, look, I believe you're going to die and give yourself as an extravagant gift for all of us. And so I want to give you an extravagant gift right now in my act of worship. But what ended up happening is those around started getting critical of her. And if you have people in your life that are negative and critical, you need to learn to shut them out or turn them off or stay away from them. Because nearness is likeness. Their criticism will turn become your criticism. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 33, the Bible says, Be not deceived. In other words, don't think that this isn't going to happen to you. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. When you're around the wrong influences, it's going to have an effect and an impact upon you. And no one is exempt from this. Every one of us has the capability of becoming very critical if we're around critical people. And so I want to encourage us to kind of take inventory of our influences and make sure that we're around people who aren't like that. And there are people like that in churches all over this country who uh, are, are critical, and, and they're critical of everything that goes on, and, and that criticism begins to spread because other people listen to it. Don't be a listener to criticism. Stay away from it. These disciples, they listened to the criticism of Judas, and as a result, they became critical. They went, you know what? 
She should have sold this and given to the poor. Why was this waste of the ointment made? They were critical and thought that her gift was excessive. Unreasonable, outrageous, way overboard. I was thinking back to, in the Bible, of others who were criticized for their service for the Lord and their desire to please the Lord. I thought about David. When he gets sent by his dad to see what's going on with his brothers, and he goes and delivers, you know, Uber Eats there, and, and uh, he delivers that, the bread and the cheese, and he says, what's going on? And they begin to tell him. And in uh, 1 Samuel chapter number, uh, let me think, 16, I believe it is. Let me turn over there. <clears throat> I'm in, I'm supposed to be chapter 17, I'm sorry. And uh, verse 20, David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took and went as Jesse has commanded him, and he came to the trench as the host was going forth the, to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, ran to the army and came and saluted his brethren. As he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines. Spake according to the same words, and David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. The men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel he has come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make him his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And so David's simply just inquiring here. He's like, what what would happen to the guy who kills this guy, who keeps defying the armies of the uh, nation of Israel? In verse 28, Eliab comes in, Mr. Critical. His older brother, and when he heard he spake uh, unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left thy few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down, that thou mightest see the battle. David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? So Eliab immediately gets critical of David and assumes that he has a prideful motive. So they assumed, and uh, these disciples here, when they examined the extravagant devotion of Mary, they assumed that she was wasting this. She was actually investing it in something far more important. I think about Cain, who was jealous of Abel's sacrifice. I mean, Abel did what was right, what God requested, what God demanded, and, and, and Cain thought, well, I'm going to do it my own way. And when Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted, he got very jealous and critical of his brother Abel. Joseph's brother criticized him for wanting to do right. But, but that was in the Bible. Criticism never happens today anymore, right? I wish that were true. But today, sadly, even the Lord's people will be critical of those who are striving to please the Lord in their lives. They try to find fault and perhaps assume wrong motives in order to justify their their lack of endeavoring to please the Lord in their life. 
And they want to justify where they're at. And so they assume that those who are uh, perhaps um, really endeavoring to please the Lord in an extravagant way, they assume that they have wrong motives. And I've seen it happen a lot. And it's sad. I mean, here were the Lord's own disciples that were murmuring against her. Too many times this still happens. And if you're one who likes to do this with believers who are striving to give their all for the Lord's sake, instead of assuming they're trying to be judgy or doing it for a show, maybe assume that they're doing it because they love the Lord and are striving to please Him in their life. Could it be that that's the case? Why don't we assume that instead of automatically assuming that they're prideful and judgmental and and doing it just for a show? And maybe you could be encouraged to maybe grow in your own life. Instead of trying to justify where you're at and justifying the, the fact that you're not growing or not growing in a certain area, why don't you say, you know what, maybe they could be a good example to me in this. Maybe I can follow their example. Instead of trying to justify where you're at by assuming they have wrong motives. And that's what the, disi- the disciples were doing. They assumed that she had the wrong motives here, and, and uh, they, they assumed the wrong thing. So this extravagant decision, oh, it was costly. Sadly, it was criticized. But notice here, as we make our way through chapter 14 here, this passage, it was also complimented. It was also complimented in verse number 6. Jesus has heard enough, and he knows enough. He's seen enough of their murmuring. Verse number six, he speaks up. Let her alone. Would you just stop assuming? Leave her alone. What she's doing, she's doing for the right reasons. And and look, when we assume the motives of others, all we're doing is assuming something that we have no idea what the reality is. Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? Evidently, this got to her a little bit. She got a little troubled by this. She honestly, I think, had the right pure motive of breaking this as a gift for the Lord. And uh, yeah, she could have sold it and given it to the poor. But, but in that moment, there was just this love for God and a devotion to Him that was extravagant. And, and then they start murmuring, and it kind of ruined the moment. This criticism kind of ruined the vibe that was going there. All these disciples kind of looking at her with these judgmental eyes. It ruined the moment. Why trouble ye her? And then Jesus says and declares this in verse 6, She hath wrought a good work on me. Sure, she could have sold it for the poor, but she hath wrought a good work on me. Verse 7, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. And he was right. We still have the poor with us. But in that moment, that was one moment that she could give something extravagant for the Lord to express her love and appreciation for who he is and what he has done. Verse 8, he says, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. As I mentioned before, that act was 
an act of anointing the body for what was going to come. He was going to die on the cross. Everybody else, all the disciples, heard him say on multiple occasions that he was going to suffer and die, but kind of one in one ear and one out the other. But Mary, she took note. She knew. And she makes, her gift makes a statement that Jesus would indeed die on the cross and that he would suffer and die. In verse number 9, he gives this powerful Compliment. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial for her of her. So for two thousand years, preachers have preached this sermon. And what she did would be an example for all of us for years to come. It was complimented. And while everyone else there was critical, there was one who was complimentary to her extravagant decision and devotion, the one who matters most. She wasn't striving to please everyone around her. She was instead focusing on pleasing the Lord. She was after his approval. She had an audience in that moment of one. While there were several people there, uh, she was fixed upon one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have in my office a uh, photo, I guess. Uh, it's this little saying, and we'll go throw it up on there. If you can see it there, live, lead, and preach for an audience of one. She wasn't after the approval of all the other disciples. She wasn't wanting Judas's applause. She wanted the Lord Jesus's applause. She was after pleasing the audience of one. I read about a preacher by the name of Hugh Latimer, and he once preached before King Henry VIII. Henry was greatly displeased by the boldness in the sermon and ordered Latimer to preach again on the following Sunday and apologize for the offense that he had given. Well, The next Sunday, after reading his text, Hugh Latimer began a sermon with this. And he publicly said, Hugh Latimer, speaking to himself here, Dost thou know before whom thou, art, um, whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But he continued, he said, But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. He then preached the same sermon he had preached the preceding Sunday and with considerably more energy. You see, the idea here is that Hugh understood that his audience, yes, was uh, to the king, but to a greater king most of all. And you and I, as we live our lives, yes, we need to consider one another to love and to good works, and, and we need to consider our actions. And we spoke about that in my Sunday school class this morning. But, but most of all, we're to consider the king on high, the audience of one. Are we to care about what others think? Yes, but not more than we care about what God thinks. 
for an audience of one. Paul said it this way, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Colossians 3.23, And whatsoever you do, do heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men. So what I'm doing here, am I doing it for you? Yes, I'm, feeding, I'm endeavoring to feed the flock of God. But ultimately, I'm doing it for Him. Because if I do it to please everybody here, I'm going to be tiptoeing through all the hard stuff and just avoiding it altogether and saying, y'all just need to live your best life now. You're all just wonderful. Instead of telling you what God says, an audience of one. And the Lord complimented her for it. Proverbs 29, 25, one more reference here. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Yeah. For Christ alone, for an audience of one. So bold behavior number one was the enemy's desire. Uh, bold behavior number two was the extravagant devotion. But notice thirdly and quickly here. Bold behavior number three here in Bethany, the evil decision. So in verse number 10. After Jesus compliments Mary and her extravagant devotion, verse number 10, the Bible says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. See, Judas has had enough. And he finally made the bold, evil decision to betray the Lord Jesus. Now, I pointed out as we've gone through the last couple of chapters, how completely sad it was for the scribes and the Sadducees, chief priests, elders, and Pharisees, to be so close to the truth, to be actually looking at him in the eye as they try to catch him in his words. And yet they chose to reject him. I'm so close to the truth. How sad. But even more mind-boggling than all of that is G Judas, who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus for months on end, seeing miracle after miracle and hearing his voice, getting to hear the very voice of Jesus Christ over and over again as he spoke in love and spoke in truth. Still, at this point, choosing to boldly betray the Son of God. Kind of hard to process, isn't it? But wait a minute. While it's hard to believe that someone who would be so close to the truth for so long could walk away, it tragically still happens too many times in churches just like this one in our day and age, where young people just like you grow up and hear the truth for the better part of two decades, who see the working of God within that church, but then when it's time for them to make their own decision... They bolt. Where's the door? Good. I don't have to come to church anymore. Sweet. How could Judas make this bold decision? And how can young people walk away from all they grew up knowing? I believe for the many, 
The reason is the same. They personally, never personally received the truth. Judas, he was around the truth. But the truth is not, we're not like, it, we, we can't receive the truth necessarily through osmosis. Okay? You, you can be exposed to the truth, and that's good and healthy and wonderful to be in an environment where you're exposed to it, but there needs to be a personal decision to receive it. And Judas failed to do that. I fear that too many young people fail to do that as well. So, young people, if you're here and you're not saved, you've never personally received the Lord Jesus, can I encourage you to make the greatest decision of your life to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. No, 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 what I do with my, with my life and what career I do, that's the most, it's not the most important because that just affects uh, this life. But the decision to receive Christ, that affects this life and the life to come. So if you've never done that, teenager or non-teenager, please, can I encourage you to make the greatest decision of your life to trust Christ as your Savior. Don't be a Judas. To be around the truth, but not have ever received the truth. There's a lot of Judases in churches today, I believe, who are in church, who go through the motions. I mean, no one would have ever thought that Judas wasn't a believer. He was so convincing that he was a believer that they entrusted him with the money. So, Brother Terry is our treasurer. <laughs> And I trust him implicitly. And I know for sure he is a believer. But in that group of disciples, Judas was the most trusted. And everybody thought, we're going to find out later in this passage here, when, when Jesus says, You're, somebody's going to betray me, and everybody thinks, is it me? Nobody thought, oh, it's got to be Judas. I mean, there's so many signs, it's like, it's got to be Judas. Now, everybody thought it was them. Everybody thought, is it me? It's got to be me. It can't be anybody else here. I trust everybody. But there's a traitor in the midst. I wonder if there's a Judas in the room today who needs to come to Christ. Maybe you've been coming to church for decades. Maybe this is your first time here. Don't leave this place being a Judas. Let's make the most important decision of our life and receive the truth while we, may, while we still can. Notice verse number 11 here. We'll wrap this up in a second, but notice verse 11. This is just so twisted. So Judas, Judas comes to these chief priests and betrays him unto them. And he has this conversation with them. And in verse number 11, when they heard it, they were glad. I mean, this is just getting wicked. Because as Judas comes to him and says, hey, I know where he's going to be. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to betray him. I can't have the 300 pence because the lady broke it. And so I'm going to go and try to get some money out of this deal. And so he goes and makes the deal for 30 pieces of silver. And they said, boy, this is a great deal. We don't have to take him by force anymore. One of his own came to us and, and he's going to betray him. This is wonderful. They were glad the evil laugh that they must have had at that moment. 
And they promised to give him money, and he sought then how he might conveniently betray him. So as he comes and joins back up with the disciples, there was something on the, not the back of his mind, the forefront of his mind. How can I do this? When's the next opportunity that I can do this? And we all kind of know what ends up happening, but here he makes a very evil decision. Three bold behaviors in Bethany. Now, as we wrap this up, just very quickly, I want to remind us of a statement that Jesus made as he complimented the Mary's extravagant sacrifice in verse number 8 when, she said, when he said, She hath done what she could. She hath done what she could. By the way, really, that's all of us can do. We're not asked to do what others can do. We are asked to do what we can, though. Not more, but then not less. Are you willing to do what you can? I think of others in the Bible who did what they could. I think of the stuttering man by the name of Moses who was willing to be the one who would lead God's people out of Egypt. And I think of the widow woman at Zarephath who was willing to give what she could. She, she gave the remaining handful of meal and a little oil and a cruise. I think of a little widow woman at the treasury who gave just two measly mites and was commended by the Son of God because she gave what she could. Then that little boy who gave his lunch at the feeding of the 5,000, remember? He gave what he could, and God was able to take and multiply that. I think of the man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who gave his life to the Lord after realizing all that God forgave him for. And, and the Lord used him to start churches and to write several books of the New Testament. He did what he could. These are all people who did what they could. Will you do what you can? What can you do for the Lord's sake? Can I encourage you today, as we've seen some bold behavior in Bethany, to do what you can to show your extravagant devotion for the one who gave so much for you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture, which highlights oh, this evil, evil desire, the enemy's desire to go and murder the Son of God. But then that's contrasted with Mary and Bethany, who broke at a very costly possession for your sake. Lord, I thank you for her willingness to do that, which is an example to all of us. Help us, Lord, to do what we can. Lord, it's very sad to see what Judas did with this. He made a very evil decision to go and betray the Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to find ourselves and identify with Mary more than the others in this story. Help us, Lord, also not to identify with the disciples who developed a critical heart, but Lord, to be on the side of endeavoring to do something extravagant for you, to do something that we can do. Lord, you've done so much for us. You're worthy of an extravagant gift like Mary gave and like we could give. I pray, Lord, that all of us would be willing today to lay that down before you. Here's my life, Lord. Here's my possessions. Here's my talent. Here's my time. It's all yours. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would have a heart to give extravagantly to the one who gave extravagantly to us.